Hey there, conductors. If you've ever felt that you're not quite sure what to do next when you're studying a score, maybe you don't even know where to start with a difficult piece. Maybe you study one piece too much and then you realize at the first rehearsal that you don't know another one well enough. Or maybe you're a new conductor and you don't know what score study is. I'm excited to share that I'm finally publishing and sharing my score study checklist. I've been refining this for 12 years now, and I'm so excited to share it. It is going to walk you through my structure, my process to make sure that I learn every score that I need to learn well enough and so that nothing falls through the cracks. So it covers everything that you need to know. There's a link in the show notes. Go ahead and click it, sign up, and you'll get that score study checklist sent right to your email. You'll also get access to an eight-minute video of me explaining what each section is and how I use it to organize all the music that I need to learn. It's only eight minutes, so it's not going to take you a whole hour to learn how to study better, how to put up a process for your score study and how to make sure that nothing is falling through the cracks. So again, click the link in the show notes, and I hope to see you soon. Now, please enjoy this episode of Podium Time. Welcome to Podium Time, the podcast for conductors and students. Well, I mean, I never put anything on on the stage without having gone through it thoroughly. Uh, I do use recordings when I'm programming. And in fact, one of the things that I always do is I make a, um, a little Spotify playlist of every single one of these programs, and I will sit there. I'll actually listen all the way through it, because I never want the audience to sit through something uh, that I haven't sat through myself. I feel mm-hmm. like that's kind of the least you can do in terms of, <laughs> you know, if you're going to ask an audience to sit through something, perhaps you should have sat through it yourself. and welcome to Podium Time. This is Jeremy just hopping in before the episode to welcome all of our new listeners. We have quite a few new listeners, a lot of Facebook likes. We're really appreciative. Thank you all for listening to the podcast. And we are excited to continue bringing some great, great content from some great conductors. So this interview is a short bit at the end of our interview with Brett Mitchell that we released about a month ago. Um, Luke and I were saving it for a special occasion, and we thought that coming off a break was a pretty special occasion. So we're bringing you this mini masterclass on programming from Brett Mitchell. Um, You don't really have to listen to the first half, but you should, because that's also a great interview um, about Brett's transition into being the new music director of the Colorado Symphony. Thank you, and enjoy the episode. And there's Mm -hmm. something that's much easier um, about sharing when you're not burdened with Maestro Mitchell, when you can just be Brett. (laughs) I'm just Brett trying to share this music with people. That's all it is. Mm -hmm. Speaking of sharing music, um, we had a discussion last summer about some of your programming philosophy, and I'm hoping we can talk about that um, now, especially if there's anything in the upcoming season that you'd like to promote or, um, or, or discuss that you, that you've, um, well, the, the program that we talked about last year was the opening concert, the Beethoven five. Um, yeah. and I was, I was, I was fascinated by how you had connected it to the pieces. Are there, are there any, and, and it was a, and it was a great concert also, not just, <laughs> not just theoretically. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, there can um, be great programs on paper and then you get in the hall and you're like, boy, that was some shit, huh? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, no, happy to talk about that. You know, programming for me, and I've said this for a long time, knock on wood, that 
nothing ever happens to my you know health or whatever that I can't do this anymore. But if it did, uh, I know absolutely what I would want my career trajectory to look like. I would want to be an artistic administrator because mm-hmm. the greatest pleasure that I get outside of rehearsing and performing is programming concerts. In fact, when uh, when you and I get off the phone here in a little bit, uh, I'm going to get get right to work for the rest of the day on, uh, on <laughs> 1920 season because oh, that's, yeah. that's coming up. So, <laughs> so since you mentioned the um, the Beethoven concert that we did uh, last season, I'll, I'll just briefly fill the audience in on that. Um, this was going to be my first uh, subscription weekend as music director. Um, and so we, we put Beethoven 5 on that program uh, for a couple of reasons. Uh, one, we're shameless capitalists and we wanted people to come and Beethoven gets them in the door. Uh, but number two, uh, the very first full symphony I ever conducted uh, when I was 22 years old was Beethoven 5. So I thought, wouldn't it be great if I did Beethoven 5 on my first concert as music director of the Colorado Symphony, you know, 15 years later or whatever it was. <laughs> so then I tried to think about, you know, I'm a big proponent if we can just step back for a second of uh contemporary american music um i feel like we are a contemporary american orchestra and that means we should be playing contemporary american music it's actually very straightforward in in my head we cannot just be museums we have to keep the art form alive and we have to keep it intriguing and frankly if you could um uh, for a piece like Beethoven five, I don't know how many recordings there are Beethoven five, but certainly well over a hundred, if not mm-hmm. into the hundreds of recordings. Yeah. So if that's the case, and if every damn orchestra on the planet has recorded the thing, why would somebody see, uh, take the trouble to come and see the Colorado symphony do the piece when you could just as easily stay home. We've all got Spotify. We've all got, iTunes, <laughs> we've all got all these things. You could listen to, any of the greatest orchestras that you can listen to, the, the Vienna Philharmonic, the Berlin Philharmonic, the Cleveland Orchestra, the London Symphony, the Symphony, you can listen to anybody you want play this piece. And it's a recording. So you know it's going to be, to one degree or another, flawless. Yeah. So if that's the case, why would somebody come to a concert hall and hear an orchestra do it. Now you can talk about the thrill of live music and it's totally different live than it is. And it's true. It is, it is a very different experience, but in my opinion, that's not enough to get people to come into the concert hall. You have to give them a, um, you have to give them an experience and you have Mm -hmm. to find a way to tie these programs together. So, and I'm sure I mentioned this to you when we were chatting last summer, but about 10 or 15 years ago, I was having a conversation with Ara Guzalimian, who at the time was uh, running programming for Carnegie Hall. And Ara and I were talking about programming, and he said to me, you know, the way I think about programming is if these three pieces or four pieces or however many you're going to stick on a show um, all sidled up next to each other at a bar, what would they <laughs> have to talk about? And I thought, my God, that is a fantastic fantastic way to look at programming because listen if you've got three people and the three people or pieces or whatever are too similar then they're not going to have anything to talk about because it's you know you already you know everything you're the same people so what the hell is that 
If you've got three pieces that are totally, or people, that are completely unrelated and share nothing in common, well, that's a difficult conversation to have too. So you've got to try to find that right balance of what do these three or four or two or however many pieces are on your show, what do they all have to do with each other? What do they have to say each other? How do they inform each other? And so to get back to the, the Beethoven concert, for me, um, there are really kind of two things that make Beethoven five tick. One of those is the the kind of uh, the course that the the piece takes, which is uh, you know darkness into light. In the uh, the old Latin, it was uh, pera spera ad astra, right from despair to the stars. Mm-hmm. Um, and so something about that, you know, when you get that that C major at the beginning of the finale, it is just this sense of overwhelming <laughs> joy and celebration. And so I thought, wouldn't it be great if we could somehow find a contemporary American piece that espoused those exact same attributes, optimism, yep. joy, um, you know, the, the idea of being a, a bon vivant. And so one of my, um, one of my very, very good friends is, uh, the composer Kevin puts, I've known Kevin for a long time and Kevin has a great piece called, uh, millennium Canons that he was commissioned to write for, uh, the Boston Pops. I think when Kevin was like 30 or something, he was really young. Uh, but of course the guy won the Pulitzer prize in his thirties <laughs> too. So, and he looks like that. It's really unfair. <laughs> God damn um, Anyway, so this, uh, this Millennium Canons piece, uh, if Beethoven 5 was the first piece that I did, um, the first full symphony I ever conducted, well, the first piece I did in my first music director job was, um, uh, which was the Saginaw Bay Symphony Orchestra in Michigan, uh, that's a position I had from 2010 to 2015. Well, I did Millennium Canons as my first piece there. So mm-hmm. I kind of took my first piece, first symphony I ever conducted, and I found the kind of celebratory nature in that, and I paired it with the first piece that I ever conducted as music director of a professional orchestra. Yeah. So that's two of the three pieces. And now I thought, what could fit in the concerto slot? Well, what's the other thing that makes Beethoven 5 tick for me? The other thing for me that makes Beethoven 5 what it is, is that kind of incessant rhythmic drive. You know, once you, especially mm-hmm. you think about that first movement, you know, ba 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 and then it goes, ba 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 a moto perpetuo, you know? Yeah, yeah. And so I, I thought, all right, since you're Mr. Contemporary American music, what does that <laughs> look like in contemporary American music? And that was the shortest conversation I have ever had with myself because I instantaneously <laughs> landed on Mason Bates, yep. right? Because Mason is, you know, by day composer by night DJ, and he works all of this great, you know, rhythmic drive via 21st century, you know, EDM or whatever you mm-hmm. want to call it, um, into his orchestral music. And so we did this piece by Mason called uh, The B-Sides, Five Pieces for Orchestra. And we actually had Mason come out and he played the electronica part live with us. 
And so you end up with this program that, yes, it's two contemporary American pieces and it's, uh, you know, uh, an 18th century, 19th century uh, German slash Austrian piece. And yet they all have something to do with each other. They all have something to say to each other. Mm-hmm. So just as a kind of general overview in terms of my, my programming philosophy, that's how I try to approach it. I try to have the whole be greater, uh, you know, than the sum of its parts. So when we're looking ahead to next season, I mean, there's a few a few concerts for me that I that I really really enjoy in terms of that that aspect of them. So one of them is um, uh, this concert that we're going to do in January, uh, right around Dr. King's birthday. It's actually the weekend before uh, before MLK Day, and so we. I have a very good friend named uh, Damon Gupton who is. Uh, a very fine conductor in his own right, but he's actually more uh, commonly known, uh, or certainly more widely known, uh, as an actor. Um, he does quite a lot of uh, TV, um, but we've been friends for, for a long time. And he said, you know, one of the things I, oh, I should mention, just because it matters in the, in the context of this program, um, Damon is African-American. So um, Damon and I were talking, you know, maybe like a year ago or something like that, and he said... You know, he's conducted, I don't know how many Lincoln portraits he's conducted, but he's conducted a good number of Lincoln portraits. And he said to me, <clears throat> you know, I, I can't wait to finally, you know, be on the other side of it because I would love to narrate a Lincoln portrait. And I thought, oh, if only I had my own orchestra and could help. Oh, wait, I do have <laughs> And so, <clears throat> so I kind of took that as the starting point. And I thought, what could we do? that would that would be meaningful around Dr. King's birthday. Well, it wasn't even around Dr. King's birthday at the time. It was just, I want to do Lincoln Portrait. Mm-hmm. So then, then I started thinking, all right, what does the rest of this program look like? And so here's what the rest of the program looks like. We're going to start with the Copeland Lincoln Portrait. And as I'm sure you know, that's Aaron Copeland in the 1940s, setting the words of Abraham Lincoln, mostly from the 1860s, right, during mm-hmm. the Civil War. Well, about, uh, I think it must have been in the 1980s or early 90s. I actually can't remember. I've not done the piece before. This is one of the ones I'm going to have to study this summer. But my uh, compositional grand teacher, I was so my undergraduate degrees in composition, I studied with a man named Roger Briggs, Roger uh, studied with Joseph Schwantner, and mm-hmm. Joe has a piece called uh, New Morning for the World, Daybreak of Freedom. And this is also a piece for narrator and orchestra. But instead of Copeland setting Lincoln's words from the 1860s, now we have Schwantner setting Martin Luther King's words from the 1960s. So the first half becomes, you know, about two American composers setting the words from the Civil War, and then a hundred years later, the Civil Rights era. So it's about America, you know, kind of where we were uh, 150 years ago, America where we were 50 years ago, Damon will narrate both of those first half pieces. And then I thought it would be great to kind of have the, 
uh, original American symphony, I guess you could call it, um, on the second half. And so we're going to do the Dvorak New World Symphony, mm-hmm. um, which, of course, as you know, incorporates um, you know a, a number of uh, indigenous, I suppose you could say, uh, tunes from here in America, whether it's Native American tunes, uh, which were not incorporated, I think, but they're kind of faux Native American tunes, or African American mm-hmm. spirituals. Um, and I think that that whole, that composite, um, will be really, really engaging and a really interesting way to frame the Dvorak uh, New World Symphony. Um, yeah. I'll, I'll just jump ahead and I'll do this one more quickly, but the, uh, just a few weeks after that, right around Valentine's Day, um, you know, there's always a lot of pressure to do some kind of Valentine's program <laughs> on Valentine's Day so that you can get people in for dates and of blah, blah, blah. And that's great, um, but I think that there are interesting ways to do that beyond just programming, you know, the Tchaikovsky, Romeo, and Juliet, and yeah. whatever else there is. Nothing against that repertoire, because it's wonderful. But I think that you can find more engaging ways to do that. So, on that program, and it is very distinctly uh, a Valentine's program, uh, we're going to open with um, the what's known as the Send d'Amour, the love scene from Bernard Herrmann's score for Vertigo, mm-hmm. uh, which is a brilliant piece of music. It's just five minutes, but gorgeous and Wagnerian and wonderful because people will know it from the film because it's such a widely known film. So we open with that. And then we have uh, the great singer Kelly O'Connor is coming and she's going to sing a wonderful piece that uh, the contemporary American composer Peter Lieberson uh, wrote maybe 10 years ago for uh, for his late wife. They're now, unfortunately, both deceased. Uh, but for Lorraine Hunt Lieberson, he wrote these songs called the Neruda songs based on poems of Pablo Neruda. So yeah. obviously lots of love poetry there. So that's your mm-hmm. first half. And then the second half is kind of an American Romeo and Juliet. So we open with <laughs> um, David Diamond wrote some incidental music for a production of Romeo and Juliet. There are five movements of that. And what we're actually going to do is, so there's like, Overture, I don't remember the order of the movements, but it's like Overture, Balcony Scene, Juliet and the Nurse, Romeo and the Friar, and then the Death Scene or something yeah. something to that effect. But what I've actually already done is I've gone through Romeo and I've pulled several very, very short readings um, that Kelly, uh, our, our singer, is actually going to mm-hmm. come back on stage for the second half. And she's going to do those readings um, oh, cool. between each of the movements. So yeah. before before we even play the overture, she will, she'll do the prologue from Romeo, Fair Verona, mm-hmm. blah, blah, blah. Um, <laughs> so I think that'll be a really interesting way to present that music. It's subject matter that everybody knows. Yeah. It's with Shakespeare's words, but nobody will know the David Diamond music, which is just glorious. And mm-hmm. then we close with, uh, probably not surprisingly, if you're going to do an American Romeo and Juliet, Perhaps you should do symphonic <laughs> dances from West Side Story. Um, and so that's how we close that program. But that's that's kind of an overview of how I try to approach programming concerts. It's not that we don't have our share of Overture Concerto Symphony at the Colorado Symphony, because of course we do. Um, but I think that there are really interesting, creative ways to to engage our audience um, through programming. And that's, that's one of the things that I'm, I'm really trying to do.
Mm-hmm. Um, how do you do you know many of these pieces as you're programming, or, or do you pick something and then try to find something to fit in as you're putting these concerts together? <clears throat> well, I mean, I never put anything on on the stage without having gone through it thoroughly. Now, that doesn't mean that I'm, you know, studying the things the way that they will eventually need to be studied. Like, I have listened through, just to go back what we, to what we were just talking about, uh, the piece by Joe Schwantner, The New Morning for the World, with mm-hmm. Dr. King's text. Um, I have certainly listened through that piece, and I have listened through it uh, several times uh, to make sure that um, the musical content is such that I feel like the audience will be able to hang with it. Um, I also, um, you know, and I, while we chatted a bit ago about me not using recordings as I'm studying, uh, I do use recordings when I'm programming. Um, mm-hmm. And in fact, one of the things that I always do is I make a, um, a little Spotify playlist of every single one of these programs, and I will sit there and listen through um, especially if it's a, a you know a concert with a, a piece or two that I don't know um, as well, I'll actually listen all the way through it because I never want the audience to sit through something uh, that I haven't sat through myself. I think mm-hmm. like that's kind of the least you can do in terms of <laughs> you know if you're going to ask an audience to sit through something, perhaps you should have sat through it yourself. So yeah, yeah. So to one degree or another, I absolutely do know all of these pieces. Um, but you know, there are, there's a stack of, I don't know what it is, maybe seven to 10 pieces that I have not actually conducted before that are on next season. And that will be, uh, what the bulk of my time, uh, will be spent doing this summer. I mean, I'll of course review, Rachmaninoff 2 and I'll review you know whatever Dvorak 9 and all of that but I tend to review those things once I'm in the season and I'm kind of going through it when I've got the the breathing room during the summer I take Mm -hmm. that to learn all of the new repertoire that I'm going to do in the coming season so yeah to one degree or another I know all of it it's just do I know it by ear or do I know it in my head so that's that's what the summer's for is getting it in your brain thank you for listening to this episode of Podium Time you can find show notes for this episode and all of our other episodes at podiumtimepod.wordpress.com be sure to join our mailing list there or on our Facebook page at facebook.com slash podiumtimepod Mendelssohn's Italian Symphony was performed by the Czech National Symphony Orchestra, and Beethoven's Egmont Overture was performed by Stefano Ligorati. (laughs) 